We are in the midst of a social and political revolution. Yet in the midst of chaos, we are prioritizing joy and welcoming healing. Black LGBTQ people in Georgia are leading movements and are being heard. We are navigating Occupy Territory. Hello and welcome to the Occupy Territories podcast, a limited series podcast from The Reckoning that examines the current social and political climate through the lens of Black LGBTQ thought leaders, community activists, artists, and more. I'm Darian Aaron, editor-at-large of The Reckoning and your host of the Occupy Territories podcast. And joining the territory today to share their perspective on making art in the time of crisis are our special guests, Joel D. Lane and Trevor Lachey Perry. Trevor is an Atlanta-based musical theater performer who identifies as non-binary. Trevor's preferred pronouns are they, them. Trevor has been a constant presence on stages throughout Atlanta, having appeared in Rent and Head Over Heels at Actors Express and as an MC in the Red Room Cabaret at the Alliance Theater, just to name a few of their credits. Trevor has studied under Broadway legend Terrence Mann and earned a BFA in theater from Western Carolina University. Trevor, welcome to Occupied Territories. Hi, Darren. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. I'm thrilled to be in conversation with you today. And before I begin, I have to ask you how you're doing in the midst of this global pandemic that we're all living through and the uncertainty of a presidential election that the entire world is watching right now. Oh, well, that's quite the question. (laughs) As far as COVID, I have been very fortunate enough to have a lot of creative opportunities, as well as be thankful for the time where I can recenter myself because I was like working a full time job and then as well as doing theater full time as well. So this was a really great time to center myself to see what I really wanted out of my career, what direction I wanted to go to study more, to read a lot of acting books, to read a lot of plays specifically by black playwrights and authors and just kind of like re-energize myself as far as theater is concerned. In regard to this presidential election, I think I feel like everyone else, like high anxiety. I'm constantly checking the numbers. It's very stressful to be on the precipice of like, granted, Biden is not like the be all end all savior, but compared to the past four years, you know, it's he's definitely like a ray of light at this moment. You know, just dealing with that anxiety and like everyone else and really trying to keep myself like level headed and not stressed out. Yeah. So what do you do in order to remain centered, to keep yourself from being stressed out and to find that Zen? How do you get to that place? Well, for me, I just try to distract myself with the things that I enjoy, the things that I feel really re-energize me. Like I mentioned earlier, reading lots of books, reading lots of scripts and plays that helps. Just I love to cook. So I'll come home and like, we just got like an Instapot and I'm obsessed with that and making like really great food for me and my partner. You know, I just got a dog a couple of months ago. So that's been really helpful with me just trying to center myself in things that bring me the most joy at the moment. Yeah, I hear you. The coronavirus pandemic has presented a unique set of challenges for artists who rely on large groups of people, you know, gathering in theaters, gathering in confined spaces to experience art. How have you been able to navigate the restrictions around social distancing while still thriving as an artist? Well, the great thing about this time period is that we're turning more to digital work. I've been very fortunate, you know, to have the opportunity to do that. I just finished a one-man show with Outfront Theater called Diva Live from Hell. It was a one-person show. It's the first one-person show I've ever done. It was such a rewarding experience and also the most difficult thing that I've ever done. Like, you know, you're up there by yourself, no safety net. And I had to memorize like 
44 pages of dialogue and like 12 songs. And they just brought in a camera crew and they filmed it. And we did t- did that over two weeks to, of rehearsal of just me and the crew there, uh, social distancing, you know, mask and everything. With the exception of me, because I'm on stage and more than six feet away from them who are in the audience. But, you know, backstage still having the mask and, you know, from socializing, still being socially distant and things like that. So that was really rewarding to do that. And then everything else I've done has been like either digital readings or other filmed things. I did a cabaret at the Aurora Theater, which was also very lovely. I feel that in this time, we're all going to be just turning to these digital resources. And it's it's a little unusual because you don't have an audience there. People aren't allowed to clap or laugh at what you're doing. As you know, that's like the lifeblood of live theater. You need that audience interaction to kind of keep you going so you know that your pace isn't dragging, you know that you're hitting your marks, you know that you're, you know, there's some kind of feedback loop there between you and the audience. And so that's really taking some time to really get used to. I think this year has really forced so many of us to take a step back and really focus our energy on things that matter. Mm -hmm. Have you found during this time that you've been more invigorated in terms of wanting to create art, produce art, or have you found yourself going inward and kind of retreating from the artistic space that you would normally operate in? I feel like maybe I'm somewhere in the middle, especially with everything going on socially too in the world. I've really had to take a hard look at myself and the institutions that I have been working and performing in and taking note of all the times that I have felt that I've had to make myself lesser or I've had to like turn things off or, you know what I mean? Like kind of code switching in that theater realm because, you know, theater is, if you're talented, that's, you know, a big chunk of it. But also you have to play the game. You have to making yourself like palatable to audiences who, you know, directors, casting teams who would otherwise may not be looking for you, especially with myself being non-binary, being a big person. Also, you know, just being queer in general, I don't fit a lot of molds. So I've had to learn to kind of become a chameleon of sorts to fit into these spaces. And then when everything was kind of called to question and everything has been ground to a halt, you know, it was such a, like, what a time to take a nice long look in the mirror and to see what you've had to sacrifice to make your dreams come true in a sense. So I have found myself really coming to terms with what I need going forward in the spaces that I've been working in and also wanting to create new art, wanting to create new roles and things for people who look like me, who feel like me in those spaces. I'm in the process of writing a musical with a couple of people in town that's strictly to do with someone who looks like me trying to navigate everyday life. You know, so much of what we see in art as queer people or Black people, it's about the burdens of it. And I wanted to do something that was celebratory. And so that's what kind of caused me to start on this path of writing this musical. We just finished the first draft and I'm really excited to get to work on that so we can get people to kind of see what we've been working on. Also, there's been a rise of new theater companies, smaller places and things like that, who are specifically looking for like BIPOC actors, Black people, queer people, big people, more of a representative of what real life is like. So these theaters have popped up and sprung up all over the city. So I'm very excited to see after quarantine is over, what's going to happen. Like, we're going to hold these theater companies accountable. I mean, take Serenby Theater, for example. The community got together and they you know, they shut it down. So that's really empowering as an artist to know that, hey, look, we stood up for ourselves and we wanted people to take accountability for their actions and look at the power that we have to facilitate change. So I'm just very excited about that. 
you brought up so many great points that leads me to a couple of questions that I wanted to ask you when I initially found out that I would have the opportunity to speak with you because you've done some groundbreaking work in Atlanta, not just on stage, but the work that you do when you show up in these spaces as your authentic self, as a non-binary person, and you get these casting directors and people to see you and to go against type, which is so rare for folks in theater to do. You told a story about being cast in the musical Chicago as Matron Mama Morton. I want you to share that with our listeners because it was such an amazing experience, such a journey for you to get from the casting room to the stage in that role. Can you talk about that? Absolutely. A couple of years ago, right outside of Asheville in a town called Waynesville, they were doing Chicago. And I had been a long like participator in their season and that theater stuff. So I had to get those people to see who I was as a person and what I brought to the table. So when I went into that audition, I asked if I could read for Mama Morton and they said no. You know, they shut it down unheard of. And so I was like, okay. So I did what I came there to do. I auditioned and I sang my heart out and I got a callback. And when it came time for callbacks, they wanted us to dance to. And this was a few days later. So I came to callbacks in complete drag and high heels and I danced the female combination and I did it in front. And I was like, just really having fun and putting it out there like go big or go home. And after everyone was done with that dance call, They had kind of moved us to the lobby to do some more singing and to do some more like reading and stuff. And they were like, Trevor, can you stay back? And I was like, sure. And then once everyone had left, they were like, can you sing when you're good to mama? Like, is that in your range? And I was like, sure can. And so I went up to the stage and I just belted the song. And then they were like, wow. And then I got cast. Like they told me there, that was mine. And the point that I want people to take away from this is that I asked for permission to be my authentic self in a space where all I had to do was claim it. And then once I claimed it, that opened up so many other doors and so many other casting opportunities for me, not only in Asheville, in that area when I was living there, but when I came to Atlanta, I basically did the same thing. I went into spaces and I presented my authentic self. And I was like, this is what I want to audition for. When I did Rent at Actors Express, Freddie Ashley cast me in a split track. So I was doing a half female role, half male role. I did the Seasons of Love female solo. I did, you know, Joanne's dad. I was the homeless woman. And that opened people's eyes to be like, wow, what can't you do? And then the next big gig I got was at the Alliance in the Red Room Cabaret. And there was a part that was written for a woman. And I came in and I was like, this is the part I want. And I sang the house down and bam, it was mine. So it was like creating those spaces and taking those parts and making them my own and just being who I am and getting people to recognize my gender, my I guess my composite self of like everything, my the femininity, the masculinity, and just showing people that it's all a spectrum. You know, if you want me to be a more masculine role, I can do that. If you want me to be feminine, I can definitely do that. It's all gender is a construct. And I think that's what I've really been kind of pushing people to see that, you know, I'm capable of playing all these things authentically. It's not a gimmick. It's not a joke. It's not a gag. It's not a punchline. I am here legitimately playing these parts that are within me, that resonate within me. Wow, that is truly amazing. I can't thank you enough for showing up exactly as you are because it gives other non-binary folks, other LGBTQ plus folks, the courage and the inspiration to do the same. By you walking in your truth, you are allowing other folks light to shine. So 
that's just beautiful. Thank, thank you. you. Of course. Thank you. The most rewarding experience that I've had lately was Head Over Heels, which had a very short run on Broadway. It was ahead of its time. But Peppermint it was the first trans woman to originate a role on Broadway. And the fact that Peppermint was playing this non-binary goddess on stage opened so many doors. And I didn't even have to audition for that. I was called in specifically for that role because I am non-binary and it was very much, you know, my, it was, it was, it was me. And it was such an honor for someone to see me and already recognize that this is a role that only you can play. Like that experience I'll remember for, I like cried that whole time because just to be so visible and to be so authentically, uniquely who I am and have that be celebrated. And then after the shows, there would be meeting all of like the trans kids and the non-binary kids who are interested in theater, who had been like, I'd never seen a non-binary person on stage until you was like, like, that's something that I'm always going to remember. And just to be like able to touch those lives has been remarkable for me. Trevor, I'm curious to know what kind of theater community would you like to be a part of when the world opens back up again? Because Black Lives Matter has touched every area of our lives. It's spread across this country, outside of this country, and it's even affected the theater community. I'm sure you remember back in June when over 300 Broadway performers of color signed an open letter calling out the racism that they've experienced during the audition process and just working in New York City theater. As someone who's non-binary and a person of color, you face challenges on several fronts. So what would you like the theater community to look like when the world opens back up? I would like a more inclusive theater community, a kinder theater community, one where people realize that, you know, and, and I've been saying this for a while, though, people of color, we usually do not have access to formal arts training before we get to the collegiate or maybe the high school level. It's social economically standing. We usually don't have that privilege to do those things. And that's why Broadway has been like traditionally more of a white man's game, if I'm being frank, because, you know, if those are the communities that usually have the money and the resources to allow their children to be trained, to be a little more like prepared for the future. So being on Broadway and being on the stage has always been a gamble for a person of color, let alone even more of a gamble if you're handicapped, more of a gamble if you're queer, invisibly queer, more of a gamble if you're heavy, if you're heavy set, you might as well not even go. Like, don't even put yourself out there. And when that letter came out from those artists talking about all the things that they have witnessed, was it's empowering. It's like there is hope for everyone else waiting in the wings who's been told that it hasn't been your chance or you're not going to have the opportunity to do so. I feel like, you know, having the Black Lives Matter, having just everything has really opened up so many doors. I think theater is going to be a lot more inclusory. And it's not even the word, but you know what I mean? There's going to be so much more inclusion, so much. We're going to be, it's going to be deliberate. It's the word I like to use. Because even when people think that they're doing a diverse casting, for example, if we're talking about the revival of Carousel, I think in 2018, not 18, 2016, I think, with Jesse Mueller and Joshua Henry. And they cast Black men in the leading role in that show, which I am all about but they didn't think about that show has a connotation of the lead man in that show is physically abusive you know and what kind of picture are you painting yes you think you're you're being inclusive but this is already this is you're playing into a harmful stereotype you you understand what i'm saying like i want people to be more deliberate when they think about that think about the social ramifications of casting someone in a part that has those kind of like 
undertones to it. Think about like, it doesn't, and to be inclusive and diverse in theater and casting, it doesn't take a whole lot. Anybody in any show can be any color, any size, anything. You understand what I'm saying? Uh, yeah, most definitely. Like, that's what I mean by being deliberate. Like we're going to do Oklahoma and we're going to cast a black, uh, like they just did on Broadway. We're going to cast a black, uh, what is the lead girl in that show? Lori. That's mm-hmm. deliberate. That's purposeful. That's, you know what I mean? And having her and Curly there. And like, that's how you would put diversity into a show. You also have the young lady in the wheelchair. That's diversity in a show. It's not out of the realm to believe that there could be a black Lori, that Ado Annie is in a wheelchair and that she can still be desired. That's mm-hmm. purpose. That purposeful casting. You're not making a big statement. You're just casting someone in that role who can believably play the part and everyone else will get on board with it. So that's the kind right. of theater I want to look forward to when this is all over. I want people to be deliberate, to be purposeful and to be like, I guess, kind. Deliberate, purposeful, and kind. That's in the right direction. Mm -hmm. Well, Trevor, it's been a pleasure having you on Occupied Territories. You are now a part of the Reckoning family. And membership has its privileges. So wherever you go and whatever you do, please know that your community stands with you and is holding you up every step of the way. Thank you so much. This is a pleasure to be here. Thank you. And speaking of steps... Jewel Delane is a master of movement, and he's occupying territory next. Jewel Delane is a dancer, choreographer, filmmaker, and one of Dance Magazine's 25 to watch. Most recently, he won Celebration of Dance, Choreographer of the Year, and Best Choreography for Live Performance for Ailey 2's Touch and Degree. He has performed nationally and internationally with Ronald K. Brown Evidence and currently dances with Bessie Award-winning Camille A. Brown and Dancers. In 2012, he became the first Black independent Atlanta-based choreographer ever to be commissioned by the Atlanta Ballet for the company. He was last seen as a dancer in the Emmy Award-winning TV special Jesus Christ Superstar, live on NBC. He earned a BFA in Contemporary Dance from the University of North Carolina School of the Arts and is an Atlanta native. Jewel, welcome to Occupied Territories. Hey, thank you for having me. What up? My pleasure. (laughs) So I'm just going to go ahead and jump right into it. As I was telling you earlier, you know I am one of your biggest fans. I greatly admire your work. And you're a highly respected and sought-out choreographer. And one of the things that I love about you is that you've never shied away from social issues in your work. With everything that's happening in the world right now, we have the pandemic, the election, social unrest, racial inequality. Are these things informing the work you're creating in 2020 in any way? I think absolutely. I think it would be crazy if it didn't, because I think we live in a world now where, like, you know, the artist's responsibility is to share the things of the time. And I think that's what most artists are doing. And even in like, you know, this pivot that we've been in, you know, it's allowed me to kind of sit back and reflect and and say, how can I be part of this conversation, like this global conversation? But at the same time, how do I give myself permission to say, you need to grieve for a minute because this is a real thing. And so like, even when the start of the pandemic, like for the first week or two weeks, everybody was going online, like doing all this amazing things. And I was like, yo, I'm not working right now. Like, I'm not sure how to process this. So it took me a while to kind of figure out, okay, if anything now using 
social media as a weapon has been the biggest thing to kind of share all these things, to be part of like, you know, this political climate and just, you know, it allows me to invest in my creativity a little bit more because it's taught me to be still and to figure out how can I be the best person to deliver things, to inspire, but also how can I heal from all this as well? Yeah. And one of the things that I've noticed through talking to other artists is that a lot of the work that you would normally do inside of a theater, it's now moving to the digital space. And you've recently began to create more multimedia projects around the work that you do. Can you speak to some of the work that you've done in the multimedia realm? Yeah. What's really crazy is that I remember tapping into dance on film back in 2010. And at the time, I was still learning what like the actual medium was. And it wasn't new. Like a lot of people were like really jumping into it. But I remember getting like a lot of questions like, so why are you doing this? What is this for? And it was just like, ah, you know, I really enjoy it. But fast forward to now, it's kind of like, you know, that intuition that I had you know, just kind of made me feel like I was on the right path. And so it's important to do a lot of things online now and just do like, you know, the digital realm, because like they say, like, you know, the show must go on. And so we as artists are just trying to lean into that pivot and that shift. And so for me, it's been just like this transformative thing where I'm just continuing to express myself, even when I'm teaching at like, you know, different universities, like we do a lot of classes on Zoom. And at first I was like, what is Zoom? This Zoom life can't be real. But in actuality, it gives you the base to create these films, like even further. So in particular, like I work at University of the Arts and the first time that we actually went into the pandemic, I was actually going back and forth, creating a piece that was supposed to be live. And then all of a sudden, the idea was like, okay, so we have to put this online. How can we shift it? And so I was like, hmm, well, let me jump back into that dance on film kind of like, you know, mindset. And I remember trying to figure out how do I film this when I'm not physically with them? So thank God we all have phones with cameras on them. And so it was just a matter of just kind of like sending out different prompts and like really expressing to the students what I wanted, what they felt comfortable doing. And so from then I was able to kind of like edit all these things together to create a film, which, you know, isn't ideally what you really would want to come to the concert world to see, but it worked in its favor because it gave them an opportunity to still express themselves. But it, it also gave people that were in the comfort of their home to actually watch it. Jewel, you mentioned leaning into the moment and pivoting. And as a former dancer myself, I tend to think that dancers are forward thinking in this particular way. And being able to make something out of nothing, to be able to pivot and get to the next destination, even when they're unsure of how they're going to get there. And I say that to say, because I feel like a lot of Americans are experiencing that for the first time living through the pandemic, the financial uncertainty of what's coming next, how they're going to pay the bills. And I feel like dancers, artists in particular, have always kind of lived gig to gig, contract to contract, and they're often unsure about when the next job will come. Would you say that artists are uniquely equipped to deal with what a lot of Americans are experiencing right now for the first time? Absolutely. But at the same token, we're also the ones that are on the bottom of the totem pole. Like, you know, 
the fact that you can turn on to like, you know, a Netflix and you see all these amazing artists doing their work, but then at the same time, we're not necessarily considered essential workers. So you have like, you know, this duality that you live in that you want to see us, but you can't really support us. So for me as an artist, it's always been about, okay, cool. All right. Um, I got to pay my bills. Let me see how I can shift. Boom, 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 boom. So yeah, so we are definitely like, we have this hustle mentality where we have to keep going. Like, you know, if a door closes, all right, cool. I'm going to make my own thing. And for me, it's always been about, all right, if this person doesn't want to hire you, how can you create this world? And then how can you also make a substantial revenue off of it? So all of us, like all of my artist friends have been like, you know, people have just been like leaning into like social media and just really exploring that. Even some of like our probably like, you know, the elders who may not be fully equipped with like, okay, I don't know really what Instagram is, or I don't know how to operate it. Everybody has been so involved in trying to learn how to work through it. So yeah, so artists are definitely hustlers. I want to pivot for a second and talk about a piece you created called Touch and Agree, which deals heavily with sexuality and all that it encompasses when it involves two Black gay men. This piece was actually my introduction to your work many years ago. Can you tell our listeners about the journey you've been on with this piece from inception to present day? Yeah, like, oh man, touch and agree is like, you know, my baby. It's like that thing that said, okay, Jewel, we're going to nudge you and and this is going to set you free. I actually came out, like felt really comfortable with myself when I was 26. And I felt like I had this tough conversation with my mom and like, you know, my dad. And I felt like if they know, I don't care about anybody else. So for me, back in 2009, as I was like continuing to like say, you know, this is who I am. This is like, you know, my truth. I also had like, you know, a testimony to share. And I was a part of this platform called Lift by Daryl Foster. He's also an amazing Atlanta choreographer. And he wanted me to be on this program. And he said, I want you to deal like, you know, with sexuality. And I said, okay, cool. How do I do this? Because most of the pieces that I've seen have, have always been this idea of like, let me show you like, you know, my body and like, we're going to roll around. And although it's amazing to see, I had to really question myself and say, okay, how can you make this adaptable for you and for like, you know, the masses to really understand like this is like a real thing. And so Touch and Agree was just about my experiences and me trying to navigate, you know, me trying to like date and not being really ready. And then the other person saying, you know, I don't know what's wrong with you. And so at that moment, that's when I said, okay, if, if I'm going to like really shift into this choreographer mode, I have to always do stuff that are very personal. And I felt like this was what I was going through at the moment. And when we did it back in 2009, the response was really dope. And for some strange reason, touch and agree would not leave me alone. And I was like, that's okay. And so that's when I was starting to understand like, okay, this is bigger than what I am. And so when I started working at University of North Carolina School of Arts, I actually created the entire piece, which fast forward later, it got to be on like, you know, the second company of Alvin Ailey. And it just became this thing. And it's like, it's a part of who I am. Like you always associate myself with this particular piece. And again, as we're shifting, I kind of felt the need like, okay, so I want to put this on film, but I don't know how to do it. And I remember I wanted to do it long time ago, but I wasn't really ready. And it just so happened, like at the top of the year, thank God, before like, you know, the pandemic, you know, that we're in, I got a chance to film everything. And I said, let me just get it out because you know what? 
you never know. And I actually had someone told me like, you should probably wait, like, you know, really take your time. And I felt like in that moment, I can't really take my time because if I don't tell this story, you know, it's not going to be really told. So all that to say, Touch and Agree has just been like, I guess my little, I would call it like, you know, my little revelations, you know, it won't leave me alone and I'm here for it. And we're here to see it. So as much as you want to produce, there will be an audience for it, just like Revelations, believe you me. So that brings me to my next question as we begin to wrap this up. You are not only an amazing dancer and choreographer in your own right, but you're also training the next generation of dancers. I wonder if you feel a certain responsibility as a teacher, especially to Black male dancers who hope to follow in your footsteps, who may look up to you. Absolutely. I think that's one of the main reasons why I started really teaching it's because when I was in school, I didn't have anybody that looked like me. Yes, I had like, you know, some elders like when I was in high school. But when I went to college, I was like, where are the black men? You know, like I had a plethora of questions that I needed, like, you know, to ask. And I remember there was a, a guy named Steve Rooks. He's an amazing choreographer. And like he came to our school and I remember staring at him for about a good 20 minutes. And it was just like, you know, I was looking at him. He was looking back at me and he felt like, okay, this brother has something to ask me. I don't know when he's going to ask me. And I remember just sitting down with him and I was like, oh my gosh, where the hell have you been? And like, I needed that throughout my whole four years. And I just feel like it's my responsibility to give that back because it wasn't necessarily done for me. But when it was, I took the moment and I was super grateful for it. And I feel like there's not a lot of us in like, you know, these conservatories. And so any opportunity that I have to sit with them and just to talk and just to kind of share my own like personal experiences, I think is super important. Your choreography is known for its speed. Each step is filled with intention and a sense of urgency that is not easily forgotten after seeing your work on stage. I kind of get the feeling that there's a story behind this choice. Am I right? Mm-hmm. Yep. The story of it really is just a lot of anxiety I had really growing up. And so I always approach stuff fast. And when I was in high school, when I really started to put like, you know, some steps together, like, you know, you put like an eight count, like, you know, I remember trying to outdo myself and my fellow classmates. And I was like, well, I'm gonna do this really, really, really fast. And so I felt like I could do it fast. And then I was also really growing. And I was like, well, I'm getting taller. And typically I was always casted to like, oh, you're going to lift the girl and, you know, you're not going to really get down until you're like your plie. And I was like, no, nah, man, uh, -uh. I'm going to like really show people that I can really dance really fast. And I felt like it kind of like, you know, just stayed with me. And I try, I really try to slow stuff down, but it's just my thing, like, you know, and I, but I think a lot of that just kind of stems from like, you know, my childhood and just like, you know, when anxiety and like having the need to get everything out and like, you know, the sense of urgency. Right. There is a saying that if you do what you love, then it'll never feel like work. Do you feel as though you're continuously falling in love with dance? And how do you keep the fire burning when it feels like the business of dance and literally the world around you is disrupting the art? Hmm. That's a... Uh... An amazing question. I think a lot of it is, I would say my family and my support system, because I'm not going to lie. Like there are a lot of times where I'm like, I don't want to do this. I'm just going to work at McDonald's. I'm going to call it a day. It's all good. Cool. But I told myself 
long time ago, this is all that I do. And this is all that I've ever wanted to do. And I think part of that is, yes, I want to be able to perform, but there have been multiple tears in how I convey this message of performing arts. And I think, I, I really think being in this pandemic that we're in has allowed me to just kind of like touch in with myself and to know that you are really dope at what you do. And, and a lot of times as artists, we don't give ourselves like, you know, the credit. And I'm the most humble person that you would ever get to meet. But I'm also learning to know like, this is my worth and I'm worthy and I have something to say because for a long time, I felt like I don't want to put this out because I'm going to get compared to this person and to that person. But I think that's part of like, you know, the trajectory, you know, we all kind of stand on the shoulders of like ancestral creation. And so I would be a fool not to really lean into all of that. So those are the things that keep me inspired when I'm on like my Zoom classes, as hard as they are, you know, just being able to see like, you know, the students work from like their freaking living rooms. It's kind of like, wow, we are literally shifting dance to like, you know, these like alternate kind of spaces. And so that keeps me going. Just a lot of self-reflection and also talking with a therapist. You know, I had to really understand that too and say, you know, you, you have a lot of stuff that you have to unpack and you haven't had a chance to unpack and you've been moving, 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 moving. So, you know, this pandemic on like the good side of things have like really helped me with that. So Awesome. Well, Jewel, we thank you for being who you are and for sharing your gifts with the world. It's been a pleasure having you on Occupy Territories. You are now a part of the Reckoning family and membership has its privileges. And so wherever you go and whatever you do, please know that your community stands with you and is holding you up every step of the way. Well, I just want to say I appreciate you because, you know, I've been knowing you for like, you know, this long and you've been super supportive and just the work that you do. So I'm just a reflection of you as well. So I appreciate you. Thank you. And to our listeners, thank you for supporting Occupied Territories. Until we meet in this space again, prioritize joy and prioritize healing. We overcome obstacles. That is what we do.